If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 4. Uh, as we're, as we're going through the message, you might smell the sweet aroma of resurrection buns baking downstairs. So I'll try to be quick for you so you're not grumbling your stomachs, but we'll get you home to your families to eat. And I just want you to know if you're new here or just checking us out that your kids are a blessing to us at Fellowship Baptist Church. So if they make a squawk or a noise, Don't be embarrassed. That's okay. We love the noise of children in this church. Now, if you adults start squawking, that's a different issue. Okay, (laughs) but we love that your kids are here. But it's Easter, so it's a surprise. We're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's not something that's unnormal for us here at Fellowship Baptist Church. We are constantly in our messages and in our songs pointing us to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's my fear as a Christian and as a pastor that many Christians in our churches treat the doctrines that we hold to, and doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching, like the resurrection, as sort of fine print theology. What do I mean by fine print theology? Well, we all have one of these in our lives, a cell phone, or if you don't have a cell phone, you have a computer. And what you do is when you download an app or a new program, you get a legal disclaimer that pops up on the screen and you scroll down to the bottom and what do you click? Yeah, I agree. I've read all this and I agree. Let me just play with my new application or program. But if we're being honest, Most of us, other than Norman, has not read all that legal jargon. So um, uh, most of us just say, yes, I read it. We click and agree. We move on with life. And a lot of us here in the church, we treat the doctrines that we hold to as fine print theology, that we don't truly understand it, but we know it's important because it's there. But all we do is sign off like it means something, but we never truly let it shape our Lies, But the resurrection is not just a click and move on notion to our Christian faith. Doctrine is life. I want you to hear that and know that doctrine is life. Not because it's fun just to nerd out on it. That's not the goal. It's life because it's the truth of God. And it's the truth of God that the Holy Spirit uses to awaken dead souls, to bring you into the kingdom and to conform you to the image of his son. Doctrine is important. The teachings that the Bible hold are important. They're not just click and move on notions. Yeah, I think they're important, but I'm not going to let them fundamentally change my life. And the doctrine of the resurrection is fundamental. It's absolutely essential to our lives as Christians. And here's one idea that I want you guys to get jazzed about. I want you to be excited about today and for the rest of your days on this planet that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our believing and our becoming. The foundation of our believing and our becoming. It's what unites us as a people. It identifies us as followers. It's what makes us a believing nation. And it's the foundation of what we're becoming. It's what changes us and conforms us to Christ. So with all that in mind, I really hope that you're at our passage today. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, and I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised, and on the third day, in accordance with Scriptures, he rose. The God, that is the word of God. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it's alive and active. Father, that it pierces us. Father, that it draws us, that your Holy Spirit applies it to our lives and the Holy Spirit uses it to transform us. Father, that's our prayer here today as we look at this important teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it would transform our perspectives, that it would transform how we live, how we treat our wives and our husband and our children, how it would transform how we treat our communities and our brothers and sisters. Father, let us let it fundamentally transform us to our core. In Jesus' name, amen. So the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of our believing and becoming. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5, what you see right away is that Paul is giving us a concise and clear definition of the gospel message. In the gospel, how many have heard the word of the gospel before? Go ahead and raise your hand. Most of us have heard the word gospel. It's a popular word. It's actually become a buzzword in the Christian world. People just throw it around. It's plastered on almost every Christian book that is published because the gospel is a buzzword. And most people will look at a cover and say, well, it has the word gospel on it. It must be true, although it's probably heretical. But the gospel is not just a buzzword. The gospel is a good word, and Paul defines it and tells us what it is. And we see that the gospel is essential to everything because it's the heart of everything that we believe. It's the heart of our faith as Christians. We as followers of Christ, we believe many things. There is lots of good stuff in this book, and we believe a lot of things, and we get a couple things wrong along the way because we all get things wrong. But what our aim is as Christians in our study and in our living is that we try to teach and believe whatever is found within this book in proper context. And the gospel is the foundation, what we build upon all of our believing, all of our knowledge, because it's the most important thing we believe. And if it's the most important thing we believe, we can't get it wrong. And Paul calls it the gospel, which means good news. It's the good news of salvation and redemption that is found in Jesus Christ alone, not in any other quote-unquote God, not in any other religion. There are many ways to Jesus, but there is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. Redemption and salvation is found in Christ alone. And this gospel is fundamental to that message. This is what we preach. This is what we say. There's a lot that we are to say and should say, but one thing we should always be known for saying, something that our speech should always be seasoned with, is the good news about Jesus Christ. Amen? Is the good news about Jesus Christ. Oh, there we go. See, you'll, you'll get there. This is what we should be known for above all else. Above everything, the gospel is fundamental to our unity here as Christian believers, and it makes us into a people of God. What a truth. Because we all have different backgrounds. If I pulled all of you aside and got to know your backgrounds and your interests, I would see that there's a wide scope that makes us who we are. And really, if it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for the unity found in this church, we probably wouldn't be friends with a lot of each other without Christ. 
because our interests and our backgrounds are so different. But the gospel brings us together. The gospel is what unifies us. Look at what he, uh, Paul says in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in now which you stand. It's what you have. It's what you're living in. And then 1 Corinthians 15, 3a, the beginning says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So the gospel, Paul is saying, that I've received, I've now given to you, and you have received it. And now since you received it, you need to start giving it to someone else. This gospel is meant to be spread. So all this talk about the gospel makes us all wonder, well, what is it? And it's quite simple. I think we as Christians, we get notorious for just adding so much detail and just muddying the good truth that we start thinking like, well, maybe the gospel isn't something I understand. But 1 Corinthians 15, 3b to 4 says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. It's that simple. That's the gospel. Paul says it's the life because death indicates life. It's the death and it's the resurrection of Jesus. And you can flesh all those things out, but that is the foundation of the gospel. And the resurrection is like the certification stamp, like you get on a a certified check. It's the certification stamp of the gospel. It's what validates this good news. Without the resurrection, you couldn't call it good news. But the the resurrection certifies it as good news. Because if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, which is a real historical event, and we don't have time to get into all of that, then it should change everything about us. We have both hope and joy because Christ rose. It changes the way we view ourselves, the way we view the world around us, the way we view our neighbors. It's the way we view our family, creation, even God himself and history. It changes everything. But if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then there is no real hope. There's nothing good to say. There's no joy, no exhortation, no inspiration, no restoration, no forgiveness of sin and no reconciliation. But Christianity is not just an optimistic pile of stories that we teach to our kids so they live good and moral lives. The gospel is something that happened in space and in time. It's something that actually came to pass. Paul and other New Testament writers talk about the gospel as being historical and factual. When they were writing these epistles and the gospels, there were still eyewitnesses who were still alive out of the 500 plus who seen Jesus rise. Now he said, hey, go and check with these guys. They're still alive. You can check what I'm writing. I'm not making this up. The gospel is factual. We even see even the creeds that we confess, just a small point of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under who? That's historical. Was crucified, died, and buried. His life and death are all historical facts including the resurrection. And I would say, especially the resurrection. If it's true, then we have real hope today. And if it's not true, then all of you sitting in these seats are wasting your time. You're fools for coming here. 
If the resurrection isn't history, we're all fools. Sunday morning after Sunday morning, suckers if Jesus have not been raised from the dead. If we lose the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we lose everything. Everything. Paul makes this point. Just look at verse 14 a little later on in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, And if Jesus had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. But not just our preaching... What does it say? Your faith, your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is just vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. It's like a dog who chases his own tail just to bite himself and cause pain. It does nothing. It serves no real purpose if Christ did not rise. Or look at verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Your faith is futile. It doesn't work. And worst of all, you're left in your sins, going to stand before a holy and righteous God to answer for yourself. There's no forgiveness, no redemption, and there's no salvation or reconciliation with God if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. And as Paul says, we are to be most pitied of all men if our hope is not in Christ who rose. So why is the resurrection so crucial? Why is the resurrection so important to Christian? Because there are a variety of Christians, and I really want you to see my emphasis there, a variety of Christians, I wouldn't think they are, that would suggest that it's not so important that the resurrection happened, but that it's the idea of the resurrection. It's how the the idea of the resurrection makes me feel, how it inspires me to live. And what's happening is a fundamental change, a shift from history, they're going more ahistorical, it's not in history, to this ideological, well, I said that wrong, an ideological, I can't speak now, an ideology of the resurrection. There we go, I got it out. That it's just this thing of how it makes me feel. But that's not what the Bible presents. So I want to quickly move through, don't worry when you see this number, five reasons why the resurrection is critical to our faith. And firstly, It demonstrates that Jesus is the Son of God. It proves that Jesus is who he said he is. It validates and vindicates our Savior. Look at Romans 1.4. Jesus, it's talking about, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is declared and proven to be the person who he said he was, that he said he was the son of God, the one who is eternally begotten by the father, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, the one who can forgive all sins, the one who can calm the storm, the one who can raise the dead, the one who can heal the sick. It vindicates all of this. This Jesus who made all these claims about building a kingdom is vindicated in his resurrection because he was proven who he said he was by his rising. Jesus said this of himself in John 2.19. He was talking about the temple, but we learn that he's actually talking about his son. He says, if you destroy me, if you destroy me, I will rise back up in three days. He knew who he was. He knew what he was about. And it shouldn't have been a surprise to his disciples. It really shouldn't have. But we, we should give the disciples a little bit of benefit here because they're just like us. We are so forgetful at times. We're so nearsighted that we too would be surprised even though it was so clearly taught. The Son of God who had power, the power to lay down His life and the power to rise it back up. Look at what John 10, 17 to 18 says. 
For this reason, the Father loves me. This is Jesus speaking. Because I lay down my life that I may take it back up again. Then he goes more authoritative. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it back up again. And this charge or this authority I have received from my father. So you get that. The son of God says that I have authority, all the authority. And listen, this is like him talking to his disciples. I'm going to die. This shouldn't be a surprise. I'm going to be overtaken by wicked men, but it's because I'm laying my life down to be overtaken by wicked men so that when I rise, I might save wicked men. This is our Jesus, the Son of God, vindicated in his resurrection. The resurrection proves who he says he was. This means when you read of Christ in these holy scriptures, when you pray to Jesus in your personal prayer time, you can trust him and believe him because he can be trusted because he did what he said he would do. He didn't lie. He said, I'll be torn down and I will rise again. And he did. And there are many historical figures that we can read and we should read and we can benefit from those men and women. And there's a lot of worldly wisdom out there that is beneficial, that could make life a little easier. But there is only one Savior. One Savior. There is only one Son of God whose word is perfect all the time. It's always true and there's no mistakes given. You can trust Him. The resurrection proves it. Which brings us to our second point. That... This doctrine is so critical to our faith because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what assures us of our salvation. Have you ever wondered that question? Can I be sure that I'm saved? Jesus rose. Again, just let's 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But we know that Christ has been raised, so you're no longer in your sins. So we see in Romans 4, 25, that talking about Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our what? Justification. Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves us. He was delivered up. He suffered. He willingly sacrificed himself for our trespasses and sins. And he raised, he rose with healing in his wings and justification. So what is justification? And just to keep it short, because we could preach a whole series on just justification. But justification is an act of God. God is the initiator. He, he, it's an act that he gives to all who believe in his son. We believe, which is faith, and upon faith, we are justified. So justification is one, that we're forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future. All of our sins, all of the guilt, all of the shame is washed away. But that's just one half of justification. It would be imbalanced if we stop there. Secondly, we also receive the righteousness of Christ Jesus. He takes our filthy rags for robes of righteousness. Or in, in, uh, in more monetary terms, we, our account is credited with his righteousness. Like it's our own. It's an alien righteousness, but it's like our own. So in the act of justification, he says, I pardon you of all your crimes but I also count you as perfectly righteous so that it's not just like you don't have the debt of sin hanging over your shoulders anymore. It's like you've never 
committed those sins in the first place, completely a sponge, removed from your record. And now you're in line with my holy standards. That's what the Lord is saying. So when we're talking about justification, we need to understand that the basis, the foundation of our justification is the life and the death of Jesus. And in his life, he fulfilled the law and submitted himself to the will of the Father, and he lived for us. And then in his death, his death, what we deserve, but it was a death that he makes atonement for our sins and satisfies the wrath of Jesus for us for all those who sinned against him. Charles Spurgeon says, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Jesus stood before God as if he were you. That's powerful. And that's the basis of our justification that Christ stood before God as if we were, t- if, if, as he were taking our punishment for our sin so that we could stand before God and reap in the blessings of that are bestowed upon Christ, and if we were perfect, like Christ. It's an amazing, amazing doctrine. So as life and death are the foundations of our justification, and we receive justification by faith alone, because it's an act of God that he gives in forgiveness through belief in his Son. We receive it by faith, and the resurrection of Christ assures it, assures that justification is true because in Christ's resurrection, he is vindicated in his promises. And it's demonstrated by the Father that he accepted his sacrifice for Jesus on our behalf. Your salvation is secure and it's complete and it's finished just as Christ said on the cross. And he confirmed it when he rose again. Have you ever wondered how you can be assured that your sins are forgiven? Well, the answer is easy. Because of the resurrection, it's not just that Jesus died for us, but it's because he died for us and he rose for us. And the third reason why this teaching or doctrine matters is because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we worship a living Savior. We don't worship a martyr. We don't follow some great spiritual leader, hero, guru who lived a good life, taught some great things, but died and remained in the dirt. We worship a Savior who lives and reigns and is exalted right now. Think about this. The one who died for you, he lived for you, but he also lives for you right now. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and now he's in his session. He's ruling and reigning right now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And you might be thinking, well, what's he doing then? Well, there's a lot of things the risen, resurrected Lord is doing. But one of the things that is so beautiful is that he is praying for you by name per need right now. He is making intercession for you. In in John 17, we have Christ's high priestly prayer where he's praying to the Father explicitly saying that I'm not praying for the world, but I'm praying for the one Father that you have given to me, the ones who will believe. And we tend to look back on the life of Christ, especially during Easter time, and we say how thankful we are that Christ lived for us. He died for us, and he rose for us, but he also prayed for us. But what's powerful is that he's still praying for you right now. He didn't just pray, he is praying, and he's never ceasing. Let me just give you one scripture reference. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession or prayer for them. 
Jesus lives to make intercession or prayer for us. That's what he is living for in part. Have you ever been going through a season in life where wave after wave keeps crashing over you, that you're getting constantly bad news, that life is hard, that loved ones have died, but you know that someone is truly praying for you? How beautiful that is. Like, I mean, they're truly praying for you. They're not pulling that stunt where you start talking about something uncomfortable. So like, I'll pray for you. Talk to you later. But they're actually going before the throne of God and lifting you up before the throne of grace, asking God to do for you what you cannot. It's a great encouragement to be thought of and prayed for. So how much more beautiful is it that Jesus is praying for us by name per need? He knows his sheep by name. He calls us and we follow him and he prays for us, which tells us that we are always on Christ's mind. He doesn't forget you. He doesn't do what we commonly do and say we'll pray but forget. Jesus never forgets, but he is laser locked. He is focused on you and he's praying for you. That's what our living Savior does in part. He's praying for us. So you might be thinking, well, what's he praying for? Well, John 17 shows us that he prays that we would be preserved and persevere in our faith, to be kept, to be unified and sanctified as a body, that we would be transformed to be more like him. His prayers are in accordance with every promise that, that is offered to every believer in our holy scriptures. This means when Jesus is praying for you, the answer is always yes and amen from the Father because their wills are identical. We pray for many things as Christians, many things that we need and many things that we think we need. And sometimes the answer is yes and sometimes the answer is no for various reasons. For instance, I prayed and prayed for years that my father wouldn't succumb to his illness, but he died. Although I had faith, although that he was a believer, and he died. But yet then I also prayed for years that God would give me a wonderful godly wife, and he did. He gave me Bailey, and he because he knows best. His ways are higher than our ways. So, But many times we pray for even things that we might need, and we ask God to give us those things, and he gives us the same answer that he gives to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. When Paul said, take this from me, remove this from me. And God said, no, my grace is enough. It's sufficient. You will endure the affliction because suffering pushes us to our greatest good, which is Jesus. So the answer is no for various reasons. But when Jesus prays for you and me, it's never no. It's always yes and amen. And this isn't for you to now abuse like praying to the saints in the Catholic tradition that somehow that will supersede your prayers by going just through Jesus that now you're going to be a millionaire because you asked Jesus to do it. No, his prayers are reflected in John 17 in the promises of the Bible. When he prays for you, the answer is always yes or amen because his will is in alignment with the Father's will. He intercedes for us day and night, and this should give us comfort and courage. Which brings us to the fourth reason the resurrection matters, is because the resurrection of Jesus promises a resurrection of our own. If you don't value the idea and the promise that you will rise and be resurrected in the end for all of eternity, I want to encourage you here today to study this, to reconsider this doctrine, because it will change 
everything. It's beautiful. Jesus was raised from the dead and his resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. It's like the down payment for our resurrection. It's the beginning. It's what we look forward to. This is the emphasis of all of our hope and anticipation and excitement as Christians that Jesus will return and that we will rise and be like him for we will see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 22 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those of all who have fallen asleep, which is just biblical language with Paul, for those who have died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam we all die. So also in Christ we should all be made alive. Paul is driving home this point. Your future as a Christian is the resurrection from the dead. That's where you're going. That's what you're looking forward to. And that's what's going to happen to you. No ifs, ands, or buts. In other words, our future, our eternity is actually a fully human experience. Fully human. To many people, Christians included, we think that becoming a Christian is shedding your humanity because humanity is uh, corrupted. But that's not the case at all. Because becoming a Christian and believing in Christ and being transformed is the hope of the resurrection is a remaking and a restoring of our humanity. God made us human on purpose, not by mistake. To a believer in Jesus, it's to be more human, not less. Why do you think there'll be a new heaven, but also a new earth? Because we're designed to be on the earth. It's to be less human that's reflected in our sinful desires when we act like animals without consciousness. consciousness. Our future is a resurrected state where our body and our soul are reunited in a fully human experience. No longer the corruptions or temptations of sin, evil, or injustice. Just perfectly restored humanity the way it was supposed to be. We are promised this resurrection of our own and, it's this, and, and, this thing, and this resurrection of our own should make us consider many things, but one thing it should make us think of and consider is that our bodies actually matter. Our bodies matter to God. He is going to raise you up and you, your body is going to return. Too many people think that since there's a resurrection that it doesn't matter what we do with this body because I'm, I'm going to be resurrected. This is just a loner. I can beat it up. I can abuse it. It's just a loner. Once I'm resurrected, I'm going to look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I'm going to be ripped and jacked and, and good looking. First of all, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't promise that. I'm still going to be me in the resurrection. There's not going to be any surprises. But what the Bible does promise is that we're going to be glorified and we're going to be perfected. We won't have pain or suffering or bad hearts or eyes or diabetes or cancer or you name it anymore. But it doesn't promise that you'll be 6'5 and ripped. 
That's in the book of Second Opinions, not Corinthians. When we consider the resurrection, our future hope, our future glory, it should make us look at what we have now and think, wow, this matters to God. My body matters to God. So we should be good stewards with it, not trash it, but respect it. And most importantly, honor God with it. Christ's resurrection points us to our own. where We'll live in perfect fellowship together as saints with our Lord. And the fifth and final reason of Je- uh, uh, the resurrection matters is the resurrection of Jesus is what gives you power to live a godly life. Who here thinks it's easy to live a godly life? Because I want to do what you're doing. All right, nobody. That's what I thought. Because godliness is hard. Don't hear me wrong. Godliness is rewarding and it's beneficial, but godliness is hard because it's putting sin to death. It's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Godliness means loving people who don't deserve it, who hate you. It means extending kindness and grace to people who even stab you in the back or spread rumors about you. It's impossible, really. But with God, all things are possible. And he gives us divine power to walk in this way. Look at Ephesians 1, 19 to 20, where Paul is praying that we as believers would know what is immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of heavenly places. So get that. Paul is saying that I need you to understand the greatness of God's divine power that he worked in raising Christ from the dead. The spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same spirit that now indwells in you as a believer of the resurrected Jesus. And he indwells you to perform the most dramatic miracle of all miracles. And that is godliness. Godliness in a world of wickedness temperance in a world of intemperance, self-control in an age of indulgence, love, mercy, and compassion in a world that thrives in canceling each other and hating each other. There is power in the resurrection that we all experience at our salvation. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3.10 when he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and I want to have fellowship in his suffering because they go hand in hand and Paul understands that. When you're going to share in Christ's suffering, when you're going to be afflicted for your faith, you need divine power to persevere. Paul wants you to know that. Paul understands that. And he understands that it's great hope for all who believe. Because it means that change is real. It's not just possible. It's promised. Because the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and is alive in you and is at work in you to sanctify you. As we saw in John 17, that's one of the things that Jesus prayed for, that we'd be sanctified. And remember, if Jesus prays it, what will happen? It'll come to pass. It will happen. The resurrection, we see so much. And we're just scratching the surface. We see mercy and we see grace, which we so desperately need as our world has adopted a karmic understanding that whatever you do will come back to you in either a good or worse degree. But in the resurrection, what do we see? We see the mercy of God, that he saves people that don't deserve it. And the resurrection proves it. And then in the resurrection, we see justice and victory in a world where justice is hard to come by because everyone is seemingly crooked and out to steal from you and take advantage of you. 
when you can't trust even your own government leaders, when unjust wars break out and innocent lives are lost by the millions. Where is the justice? We cry. The justice is here. It is in Christ's death and resurrection. Christ made atonement for sins. Sins were not overlooked for, but were paid for. And Jesus rose from the dead with justice and victory over evil, displaying the power and the glory. Displaying the power and glory. It's already been won. Yes, there's still wicked things going on, but justice has been served and will be continued to be served. In the resurrection, we see the power and glory, true power and glory that's not fake, that's not kingdoms of this world that have not been creative, but divine power and glory that God has manifested to save us and then gave to us to experience as we walk in resurrection power every day of our lives. What I want more than anything, Fellowship Baptist Church, me as, as, as your shepherd, under shepherd, what I want more than anything is for people to know Jesus. I want them to experience the power of the resurrection, the real transformation and change that comes with it and the fellowship of the spirit that it ushers in. I want us to be so unified as a body here that we overcome all these semantics and secondary differences and distinctives that we would say are so important. Know this, this is what I want you to know and believe, that Jesus lived and was without sin. He died on the cross and he made atonement for our sins and he rose from the dead, demonstrating who he was, proving all he said he is. And now he invites us to draw near to him by faith. Whether it's for the first time here today or whether it's a daily habit that you might come to him and find life and forgiveness and a resurrection of your own. Amen. He is risen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that we can take this time on Easter Sunday to celebrate this amazing doctrine. But Father, may we not forget it till next Easter, but Lord, may we live by it every day of our life. We need this hope to step into work. We need this hope to return into our families. We need this hope to raise our kids and to love others. Father, because of your resurrection, we can live the way that you have called us to live. Because you, by your resurrection, Jesus, have confirmed everything you said to be true. May we go in that manner. And Lord, as we lift another song to your name, may this be on our minds. Your great resurrection in love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.